So if you have your Bibles, turn them to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't, it's printed in your uh, bulletin, uh, the text that we'll read today. And so now hear God's Word, starting in chapter 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, and that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you all know that we finished a a series in the book of Revelation some months ago and what we had done is for almost half a year go through the book of Revelation. Certainly a very misunderstood text in the Bible uh, and, and it is a little bit confusing at times. You have, to, you have to come at it the way that the original audience would have read the book of Revelation. You've got to understand it through their eyes because it was not written. The book of Revelation was not written to 20th and 21st century America. It just wasn't. It was not written to us. It was written to them and we get the privilege of overhearing what was being said. And in that context, you can start to understand books like, the, like Revelation that tend to be a little bit uh, paradoxical. There's images and things that you see that you just need maybe to go back and enter their world rather than try to drag them into ours with the newspaper and all the false prophets that are out there that are talking and, and proclaiming things that are really uh, untrue. Same thing is true of Genesis. There's probably the, the, the two bookend Bibles, uh, uh, books in your Bible, Revelation and Genesis, truly are very misunderstood. So why are we bothering to... And I, I feel very strongly that leaving Revelation and going to Genesis is the perfect thing we could do. Because you see everything that's in between these two books, and I'll, I'll tell you truly, you simply will not understand anything in the rest of your Bible if you don't understand what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis. In fact, Revelation won't make a lot of sense. If you don't go back to the beginning and read the book of Genesis, try to understand it the way those people would have understood it. Instead of forcing, wrongfully so, forcing the book of Genesis to enter into the 20th and 21st century and address questions 
that nobody's asking. Moses didn't write Genesis to talk to Charles Darwin. He wrote Genesis to talk to people that were on the plains of Moab getting ready to enter the promised land. And in that context, the book of Genesis looks very different than what some people say in their their desperation to counter evolution. The Bible, Genesis, is not talking about evolution. It's not talking about creationism. It's not talking about 24-hour days. It's not talking about any of those things. It is completely its own thing. And if you don't understand that, you'll start making mistakes from chapter 3 on. There'll be nothing but confusion. So I'm going to make the, the case that Genesis was written to this original audience so that they could understand why they were here. Who is the God that Moses is declaring to them? Who's he telling them? This God is in light of what the culture was that they lived in, and who are they? Who are the people that are hearing these words? And if you do that, then the debate over creation, young earth, old earth, 24-hour days, all of that stuff, how did God do it? They go away. And you're taking the Bible and letting it speak for itself instead of imposing on it our modern scientific or biological criteria. Which, by the way, in 50 years, will be completely different than they are today. You know that, don't you? Yes? Your grandchildren and children are going to look back, they're going to go, what are you doing with a cell phone? Is that crazy or what? Driving around in a car? Don't you know how dangerous it is to be on the street? People used to actually do that. That's what world that's going to be. And so Genesis has to be relevant to them too. And the next generation, and the next, and the next. And the genius of this book is that it is. So, let's jump back in. I'm going to recap a couple things quickly, and then we're going to try to finish today the discussion of the image of God, because I don't think there's anything more important than this, by the way, in the Bible. Nothing than this. And I'll tell you why in a minute. It is the most profound exposition in any literature, anywhere, of what it means to be human. The first three chapters, what does it mean to be a human being? Not a Christian, not a Jew, not a Muslim, not black, white, green, whatever color you are. Not what political party you belong to, nothing. What it means to be a human being. And everyone asks that question, unless you have some really something wrong with you, Those of you that in the quiet moments when you're just thinking about your life, who you are, everybody's asking that question, what am I? Who am I? And it gives us a profound understanding of that. And from there, you can then go out and move out into the rest of your life. And it touches everything else if you know who God is and who you are. And we've got to enter that world, folks, in order to understand your Bible. You simply cannot understand it if you're going to insist it speaking to today. Does it say something to today? Yes. But we've got to understand it through their eyes. This is unique literature. We talked about it the last time. St. Augustine and some of the early church fathers were the first to recognize that Genesis was not a chronological uh, strictly chronological expression of how the world was made. In fact, Augustine and some of the other church fathers said 
It's not about material origin. You think it's just us in modern day that are saying that. It's not. These ancient church fathers understood the book of Genesis. And so Augustine and others said that in the first three days, God created realms or or places of existence. In other words, day one, he forms light and darkness as its background. He doesn't create darkness, by the way, because darkness is what? What did I tell you it was? Darkness is nothing. You don't create dark, it's just there. But you do create light because light is something. Light is a substance. He creates light and dark and then he separates them and he says, this is day, this is night. But don't think about sunrise and sunset. That's not what he's talking about because the sun, moon, and stars don't show up until day four. Then he takes this expanse of, of light and he dark and he populates it with sun, moon, and stars. Same thing on day two. He forms the sky and the sea because in the ancient Near East, that sky was up there and that was water because you could see it was blue. So that's water up there. and Blue down here and it would rain. Of course, water's up there. And then on day five, he fills the sea and the sky with what? Birds and fish, sea creatures. Day three, he creates the earth, the solid land. He separates the water uh, from the dry land and he puts plants and animals and people uh, on day six. He starts the vegetation on day three and he puts plants and animal, uh, people and animals. He puts those on day six. And then day seven, God rests. So the refrain, evening and morning, uh, has been misunderstood. I think, oh, this is a cycle of 24 hours. It's not a cycle of 24 hours. God is simply saying, is evening and morning a day? It's 12 hours. Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in a day? Was Jesus speaking scientifically? No. He was not talking about that. They were talking about time in a different way. And if you can't go back and do that, you'll start arguing about how it was done instead of why and who was there creating. Evening and morning, the first day, is a refrain of a chant or a song that is meant to speak to the people of God and tell them, I'm going to create a cycle of work and rest, evening being the beginning of Sabbath and next day being the end of Sabbath, and you're going you're gonna to rotate your entire life around this cycle of work and rest. He was telling humanity This is how you live. Cycles of work and rest. To be human, to be in the image and likeness of God is what will give you your purpose and meaning. The very meaning to your life. You want what does it mean to be a human being? Starts right here. And it's extremely uh, encouraging. And it's something where you can talk to anybody you know in your context, work, whether they believe in God or not. They're asking these questions. Everyone asks these questions. We ask these questions. What is my meaning? What's my purpose? Changes the way, hopefully, it will change the way you look at work. Statistics say something like 80, 85% of people hate their work. And this tells us we are to love our work. And our answer to this is, I'll find another job. Right? And you switch jobs. 
And you find out what? Still not happy. Oh, I know. I'll get rid of this wife and I'll get me another one. And guess what you find out? She just makes you as miserable as the other one did. (laughs) Or husbands. Believe me. Okay, so what does this tell us? Real quickly, let's, let's talk about it for just a minute. There are, there's a thing about identity here that is... Out, and listen, the, the, the millennial generation, the Gen Xers, and all the younger folks that are in our churches and in our homes, and some of you are married to those people, uh, even at this point, what you will find is everybody is, is struggling with identity. Who am I? And this is not new to the 21st century. People have always wondered that. And Genesis does two things. It gives us two elemental constituent identities. One is humility. You did not create yourself. It's like the guy that went into the psychiatrist's office. I'm sure you've heard about this. The guy goes into the psychiatrist's office, I got a problem, doc, and the doctor says, here, lay on the couch and we'll talk about your problems. And so he lays on the couch, he gets real comfortable, and the doctor says, now, start at the beginning and tell me what your problem is. And the guy says, oh, you want me to start at the beginning? I created the heavens and the earth. Okay. (laughs) All right, humility. You know, reading Genesis, you know you didn't create yourself. You didn't create the world. You didn't create the way it is. There is something out there, someone in this theology, but in whoever you are, Richard Dawkins or Chris Hitchens or whoever you are, whether, whether you believe that there's something out there or not, this is saying there is something out there, but it's not a it, it's a who. It's a person that's out there. And he created And in order to, you can't just shake your fist at the heavens and say, why did you make me like this? It's like the potter, uh, like the clay saying to the potter, why did you fashion me this way? It's futile. It'll drive you crazy. And many of us do get crazy arguing with God about the very way things are made. And He made everything that is very good. So we should be asking the questions, what makes it not good. Instead of bringing recriminations against the one who made it. So it's, to, it's right away telling people, human beings of every time and age, anywhere that you are, any age that you live in, you are not your own. You didn't create it. There's a certain degree of humility that must come into the life of humanity Because pride will get you nowhere. We are not God. We are not God-like. Image of God does not mean we're like God, uh, like little gods. We are not miniature gods. There is no spark. Now, some of you have heard these are all things that come out of culture and out of, you know, there's no spark of divinity in a human being. It's actually better than that. We are always reminded that we are dust. And that woman came from the side of man. It doesn't say rib in Hebrew. It says from his side. That man and, wo- man and woman make up 
the, the constituent population of Adam, humanity. Adam was not his proper name. It was the, word, the general word for mankind or humanity. And men and women stand before God with equal dignity, status, and standing completely across the board in every single sense that you can think of. And into this world of the ancient Near East, particularly this world, but even the 21st century, this was radical. Radical to understand that man was created like God to be an image or representation of God, both husband and wife, both male and female. It brought what the other side of our identity is, great dignity. You see, there's incredible dignity in a human being. This is why. Ask yourself why the, the very thought of death is repulsive to us. Why? Why do we hate going to funerals? If you like going to funerals, I'll be happy to talk to you after church. We have medication for that. Funerals are no good. They're bad. Death is not our friend. Death is an enemy. Jesus came to destroy that enemy. When you see someone sick in the hospital, someone that's, that's, that's being destroyed by a, a disease, or you see somebody's life going down the tubes, it bothers us. And it bothers us because we have great dignity. We're made to represent, reflect the image of God. We are undeniably the apex of creation. And God did not breathe the breath of life into anything. Although breath of life, that phrase in Hebrew, breath of life, can refer to animals and other things. Only human beings had God stoop over and breathe into Him that breath of life. We share His life. We represent Him. This is why we say don't sin. Stop sinning. Okay? That's the end of the sermon. Stop sinning. See you next week. No, of course. We know that... Why? You ask the question, why should I sin? Why shouldn't I do whatever I want? Because you're created in the image of God, for goodness sakes. Israel is preparing to go into the promised land and they're going to have to wage a war of harim, they're going to have to cleanse the land of its pollution, which meant that a lot of people were going to die. These were people that archaeologists and historians have said that the Canaanite world was the most horrific thing you could imagine. And God was going to go in with his army and cleanse the land. And there's problems with that. I'll be happy to answer your questions if you have some. But this concept, think with me now, this is... You have to put your thinking cap on. The twin constituents of humility and dignity would prevent the army of God from going in and killing willy-nilly. You know what I mean. Willy-nilly is a theological term, I know. but it's a <laughs> You see, understanding the great humility that human beings have and at the same time the dignity that people have made it possible for the army of Israel to go in and actually spare people like Rahab, the Canaanite harlot who ran a brothel. It made it possible for the king of Israel 
to have a grandmother who was a Moabitess, not even, they, they were not to be counted as normal people. It made it possible for these people to be spared and to find their way into the community of faith. And that's why you're here. Do you get that? That God put this worldview into His creation and said, people matter. And people can have terrible sins. They can be terrible. But I will spare them if they will simply trust Me. Because everything I made, I made good and very good. And people especially matter. Male, female, black, white, whatever race, even the Canaanites, even the prostitutes, even the Moabites. How would you like to do Ancestry.com and find out that you were a Canaanite? Have any of you found that out? See, it got real quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Raul, you and I are Canaanites, right? We're from the Phine- we're Phoenicians. That's right. Uh, of course, you don't want to. Who wants to find that out? But you can find it out. And so, what does that mean that you're alive and here worshiping Jesus? Hey, that's pretty cool, right? It's because you have humility and dignity. That's your constituent identity. Let us make man. Look at verse twenty-six. Let us make humanity. That word Adam should be. Uh, a man should be humanity. It's Adam. It's general for humanity. In our image, in our likeness, it's the first poem that is in the Bible of true Hebrew poetry. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's a plural. He's, he's talking about plurality. Let us Make them. He's, he's saying into this world that people are not just individuals any more than God is just a monad that's up there uh, in, in the sky somewhere. He's just this thing, this, this ball of light or something, that there's nothing else up there. It's just raw power. What he's saying, let us make man in our image and let them, he's saying that there is a communal uh, aspect to the way that creation was made that reflects God. And of course, later in the New Testament, we find out that God is triune. But that's not what these people would have understood. What they would have understood is that God is more than just one thing. There's more to Him than just this one thing. Like in Islam. Islam puts forward a God who is a monad, who has compassion and mercy, but nobody understands why. We know why. Because he's in a relationship with his son and with the power of his Holy Spirit. And that these things, very mysterious, but that they are in relationship. And the creation came out of that relationship. And therefore, people are meant to be in communion. Why do we come to church on Sunday? Just to bore ourselves to tears. I, I know it doesn't ever happen in this church, but I mean, there are churches where people are... No. You know, when I, we come together because we want to worship God together and, and share each other's 
joys and each other's pains and hurts. And sadly, church is the last place that you better show any weakness. Don't tell anybody that you sinned. Don't tell anybody that you have done anything wrong because they'll look bad at you. And that sadly is true. But humanity from the very beginning was defined by the image and likeness of God, not by roles. I said all that because in our day and in the church history, they wanted to define women and men by their roles, right? And that's how we look at men and women, is primarily based on roles. Well, she's supposed to stay home, she's supposed to work uh, in the house and take care and mother the children and cook and all that. Uh, and the men are supposed to be out killing giants and, and you know, riding a horse and smoking marble cigarettes and that kind of thing. You don't believe that? It's in the Bible. The only woman that smoked in the Bible was Rachel. You know that, right? No? You don't know that Rachel lit off her camel? <laughs> I'm trying to wake some of you up this morning. Humanity has been defined by image. It's not that we don't have roles, folks, as, as men and women. It's not that the Bible doesn't talk about that. It does. But from the get-go, the constituent identity of man and woman is equal. Equal in dignity, equal in power, in status before God, in standing before God. Yes, our roles may be, I can't have a baby, wouldn't want to have a baby. And I have certain roles in my family. Marivy has her roles. Her role is to boss me around. Uh, You get the idea. We are created in God's image. We are an embodied unity. I talked to Hugo about this last week. And uh, we, we were not made to be a, a spirit that dwelled in a body that has a soul, whatever. That tripartite, uh, bipartite theology. All these things are, they're okay to talk about it, but that's not how you were made. That's not who you are. You're not a spirit, you're not a soul. You're not a body. You are a human being that's 100% body, 100% spirit, and 100% soul. It's all that. And, and we're, we're, we're built as a unity. And, and sin, we're going to find out in a few weeks, sin tore that up. And the effects have been horrific. Other creatures were brought forth, but only humanity got the breath of life. And the image of God in us is that breath of life that we are then to go out and represent the whole world. Our job, look at verse 26 and 28 that, that are the, the frame of this beautiful song, this, this hymn, this poem that God says about creating man, creating them. The thing that frames them is that he blessed them and gave them what we call the creation mandate. He said he blessed them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Let them, both of them, have dominion and subdue and rule over the fish and the livestock. They were created, we were created, man and woman, human beings, were created to together go into a world that was filled with chaos and void. It was empty. God ordered it 
as you just saw in the six days of creation, he ordered it so that it would be capable for humanity to go in and then care for it and make it a garden. He started them off. He gave them their start, gave them their seed money, uh, and they had their little garden, and they were to go out, have more babies, have people, and spread out over the face of the earth and cover the earth with garden, with temple, with beauty, with worship of God. They were to form, that's what subdue and dominion and all that means, they were to form and they were to fill. They were to be prodigious in their filling. Not just babies, but everything. Think about a seed, any seed. You put one seed in the ground, what do you get? Thousands, right? Have one baby and wait a hundred years and what do you have? Bunch of babies, Right? Do we need a biology lesson? No, you understand. He made the world so it would be prodigious and would produce good. We were to be his stewards, care for, not exploit, not exploit for profit, but take care of the creation. Be good to it and it would be good to us. Mistreat it and it will be destroyed. We were also to reflect God in his character. You know, if you pick up a systematic theology and read it, you can see what all the different ideas are about the image of God. But whatever it is, and it's, there's a multiplicity to it of what it is, whatever it is, it was meant so that you and I, think about this, you and me could represent Him and His character and His will. That's what holiness is all about. That's what all that's about. To simply represent Him to everything and everyone else. In the ancient Near East, listen to this, ancient Oriental kings were often seen as bearing the image of their God. But Genesis affirms that every human being is made in the image of God. The New Testament affirms that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. So what you're looking at here, folks, is in the the ancient Near East, in this world that Moses was speaking into, only kings could be the image of God. Only their offspring could be the image of God. Only priests, these mysterious priestly people, could be images of God, communicators of God. They, they had by right, by royal right and endowment, the right to oppress the people around them and demand from them things. Moses steps into this world and he says, no, every human being is just as good as Pharaoh. Every human being is just as good as this one or that one. Yes, one of the reasons to love the United States, yeah? Because here we are, by, hopefully, by an ideal, all created image. It's why we do not uh, make our politicians kings and queens and rulers, right? We save that for the movie stars. But we don't. The politicians, in fact, we make fun of our politicians. We joke about them and listen, they are... They are, they are funny. Because, I mean, the best of them only get to stay around a few years, right? Unless they, you know. 
But think about how radical that would have been for, for God to speak and say, no, no, everybody's got my image. So, the most powerful of all spiritual forces, one commentator said, is man's view of himself, the way in which he understands his nature and his destiny. Indeed, it is the one force which determines all the others which influence human life. How you see yourself, this is what we're getting at. How you see yourself and your, your, who you are, your constituent identity, will then become the way in which you treat not only yourself, but everybody else. Imagine the world. Can you imagine how great the world would be if we were always looking at one another and saying, how can I give up everything for you? How can I serve you? How can I give my life away to you? It would radical, make our marriages radical, make our parenting radical, make our church life radical, make our country radical. If every human being saw themselves in the image of God, and remember, this is how he created it to be very good, so that we would be constantly the love and generosity and magnanimity and all flowing out to other people. And they to us. Do you, do you see? We're not talking about sin yet. You, some of you are thinking, oh, I could never do that because they would take advantage. Remember, sin is not here yet. This is just the way God made it very good. That we would love and serve each other and work together for the advancement of the kingdom of God to spread the glory of God over the entire earth. And if you can recapture that, then what He promises is rest. True rest. You know, I, I wouldn't uh, want, and I'm not joking, I wouldn't want a show of hands for how many people in our congregation are taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs. Right? Who in the 21st century is not anxious? Right? I mean, really. And if you're not, you should be. Because things are nutty. And the input that we're getting from news and cable and internet and everywhere is just overwhelming. It can crush you down and make you depressed and anxious and fearful. And money and this and kids and family and jobs and on and on and on. And, and you know, you just, who's not anxious? Who's not? We are desperate. In our generation, in the 21st century, we should read these words for rest and say, God, give me some rest. Genesis is very relevant, uh, relevant to us because of that. How in the world are you going to enter rest? Before you even read the rest of your Bible, you already know you want rest. Those who formerly received the gospel failed to enter rest, listen, because of disobedience, apatheia, apathy. A refusal to believe. That's what the word means in this particular text from Hebrews chapter 4. Those who formerly received, that's that old world, those who formerly refused to believe the good news could not enter the rest 
Remember, they're on the plains of Moab and they're heading into the promised land and Joshua, which is the word for Jesus, Joshua, the servant of of Moses, is going to lead them in. But the writer of Hebrews said they could not enter that land of rest. They couldn't enter Canaan because of their unbelief, their refusal to believe the good news. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another later time, which is what I'm telling you this morning. They weren't able to enter that rest because they refused to believe. And the writer says, since we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession of faith. What he's saying is the opposite of apatheia, apathy. He's saying, Hold on to your faith. In other words, believe the gospel promise that the King has come. And Jesus Himself referenced Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3, in His famous saying in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you Shabbat. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Where? In me. He is the one, folks, that restores what was lost to us. The very good that each of us wants. The very good that each of us is desperate for. The rest we're looking for is found in Christ alone. Plus nothing. He went into our pain and our agony. He came into the brokenness. You'll see in chapter 3, right away, God says, I'm going to remedy this problem that you created. I'm going to fix it. And here's how I'm going to do it. Me, me, for you. The paradigm that Genesis gives us, me for you, God says, I'll fix it. And it's going to be the same way I made it. Me for you. Will you trust Him? Will you trust this great Savior who loves you and gave Himself for you? I hope you will. Don't be apatheia. Don't refuse to believe. Believe the Gospel. Let's pray. Father, please help us. We need help to believe this. It's uh, sometimes the the calamities of this life and especially living in the modern world, we don't want to... uh, uh, minimize the fact that we live in a very stressful environment of, of things. And it's hard to find rest. We, we desperately want it. We, we fill our lives with things to thinking they're going to give us rest. And, and they don't. They just make us more miserable. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to truly cut away the lies of the serpent And follow this great King who loved us and gave Himself for us. Me for you, Jesus said. Help us to trust Him. Amen.